0: Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com.
1: I'm Hillary Hartley.
2: And I'm Aiden Feldman. And, and you're, you're listening, listening to
0: Changelog. Welcome back, everyone. This is The Changelog, and I'm your host, Adam Stokoviak. This is episode 230, and today Jared and I are talking to Hillary Hartley and Aiden Feldman of 18F. Talking about the way the federal government builds, buys, and uses software, digital services, things like that. A lot of fun conversation about where the 18F came from, the roles that both Hillary and Aiden play, and how pivotal they are. Interesting projects like MicroPurchase, 18F guides, Cloud.gov, analytics, and more. We have three sponsors today: Code School, Rollbar, and GoCD from ThoughtWorks. First sponsor of the show is our friends at code school and it's black friday all week long at code school which means you get to save big they have two offers to help you save a six month plan for 49 percent off and a full year plan for 51 percent off the sale starts monday november 21st and ends monday november 28th but don't wait this is a limited time offer head to codeschool.com to learn more and now on to the show And we are back. We have a fun show today, Jared. 18F. It's mm-hmm. it, this is a show, I think, at least six months or more in the making, right?
3: Yeah, that's right. It's a show that we wanted to do for a long time and we've had people ask us, specifically in ping. Chris McKay gave us the idea for this show. And when he first asked us, I was I was a little bit uh, I just didn't know who to talk to. If you go to 18F's website, you'll find that their team is like hundreds of people large. And I didn't know the best person to talk to. Uh, thankfully, I we'll want to give a shout out to Atul Varma, who was in Ping on a different issue. And uh, we got to talk and realized Atul has connections at 18F, perhaps. I he may even work there. I don't recall. But Atul introduced us to Hillary Hartley and Aiden Feldman. And we were able to uh, line up a show. So, Hillary and Aiden, thanks so much for joining us on the changelog. Thanks for having us.
1: Excited to be here.
0: I guess one more thing we should probably plug to Jared is Sarah Allen when we had her back on the show, Mm -hmm. episode 157, actually. That was a while ago, but we talked to her a little bit about some of the things. It's mostly about building bridges, which is uh, from Bridge Foundry and whatnot, but uh, Mm -hmm. that's kind of where I was first enamored by the work being done at 18F.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Go check out that show. Sarah is awesome. And uh, before we get too far into it, we just keep talking about 18F. Perhaps we should get a definition. And uh, let's leave it to Hillary. Hillary, you are the deputy executive director, which is an awesome title, there at 18F. Why don't you tell us what it is and what you all do?
1: Sure. Um, 18F actually came out of the Presidential Innovation Fellowship, which is how uh, I got involved and how Sarah Allen got involved. We were both PIFs, which is an unfortunate acronym, but we stuck with it. Uh, We were both Innovation Fellows in 2013, and at the end of 2013 a few things happened. There was a, uh, there was a government shutdown. There was also a fairly large government website that failed. And, um, ATF did not actually, uh, itself contribute to the rescue of healthcare.gov, but that moment kind of catalyzed a lot of things at the federal government level. And it, it gave a lot of us working on technology in that space, you know, kind of a a common vocabulary and also a common playbook for how we were going to approach this stuff. So at the end of 2013, a bunch of presidential innovation fellows decided to stick around the general services administration uh, for a little bit longer. And we created a small team at the time, which was designed essentially to work with other agencies, helping them build uh, software and digital services. So uh, in a nutshell, 18f is a consultancy made up of uh, federal government employees that so we are a, a government team inside the the GSA the General Services Administration that works with other federal agencies and over the last uh, two and a half almost three years we've grown from about 15 people to about 200 people and uh, we've worked with I think it's something like 37 different federal agencies uh, helping them deliver services but also um, in a consulting capacity too. So we do a, a lot of short-term um, consulting engagements now that really at the I think at the heart of what we do is helping an agency uh or a program manager see their problem in a in a new light or see a path forward um, in a new way. And we either become the team that helps them build something or we help them you know get a project back on track either by helping them buy something or create an RFP, a request for proposal, or um, maybe even work with an existing vendor. Mm. So that's kind of the, the scope of what we do with, again, at the heart of it, really just being the people who are helping our, our agency partners really kind of see their technology challenges in, uh, in a new way.
0: You said the, the word agency, right? That's the, the how you act internally as 18 if an agency?
1: We are inside yeah, the General Services Administration, which is um, which is a federal government agency, and then we work uh, in partnership with the other federal government agencies.
0: Well the reason why I asked that question is um, it's common in bigger companies to have essentially what gets branded or termed the marketing team, right? but' they're, mm-hmm. they're essentially an internal agency to the organization and it may have many departments, many branches, and this seems like a much bigger you know, broader version of that that a lot of larger corporations tend to have. Is that accurate to say? Where you work for different departments and they kind of uh, reach out to you for different things they're trying to do or new problems they're trying to solve and you help them and come alongside them to solve
4: those problems.
1: Yeah, I think that's, I think that's definitely a, a fair comparison. One of the reasons we sort of frame it as a consultancy is because we actually do operate that way. We operate as a business. So, uh, you know, we are inside government, but we're not Getting appropriations from Congress we're not getting getting money given to us uh, we actually charge the other agencies an, an hourly rate right to, to work with us
0: mm. very similar in, in organizations that are like that too uh, slightly different except they're not exchanging money but they do tend to bill hours or at least think about mm-hmm. time and effort and things like that they just don't say it's an open check and have fun
1: yeah
3: cool. well in terms of getting to know you guys a little bit um, Aiden, why don't you give us a little bit of your backstory with regards to how you got involved in 18F? You are uh, an innovation specialist, aka a, a developer at the organization. How did you get involved?
2: Yeah, so I've been at 18F for just over two years. Uh, I had you know, worked at tech companies, startups and things before that, and never ever considered working in government until uh, a former coworker, you know, pointed it out to me and said, you know, this is a really cool team that, you know, believes really strongly in open source, which is something I feel really strongly about. And, you know, you can't really ask for a better mission. So I ended up talking with a couple people on the team. And
3: yeah, just kind of fell in love. And so I've been there ever since. I read that you're also an instructor at Cornell. Can you tell us about that a little bit? Yeah. So, uh, you know, outside of my
2: work with GSA, I do some teaching. Um, yeah, right now I'm doing a class at Cornell, uh, kind of teaching about how large-scale systems you know, work uh, when, you're, when you're doing web development. So, you know, understanding DevOps principles and um, all different layers of the stack, that kind of thing. So, yeah, in general, outside of work, uh, I do a lot, a lot with people learning to code, and that's something I'm also really excited about.
3: Very cool. Now, Hillary, we have to ask you about this because you have an awesome single word twitter handle <laughs> hillary which shows that you've you've been around you you got that one probably early as many of us have to go you know either a uh, mock name or full name or underscore something yeah or put our age at the end or something like that but you had you got hillary which is an awesome twitter handle but i got to imagine being hillary during the 2016 election probably brought to you a lot of noise can you tell us about what it's like to have that handle on twitter this year
1: yeah, the last year or two, even. Um, yeah. Twitter has not been especially usable for me, um, at least how I used to, you know, use it to keep in touch with uh, friends and family, but also, you know, uh, if I'm speaking at a conference, if people, you know, talking uh, to me, asking questions, et cetera um most most everything that is actually something i would want to read is completely buried mm. in um noise is a very nice way to say it <laughs> yeah you can go to twitter.com search for at Hillary. oh man <laughs> and see for yourself
3: <laughs> i was happy for you at first and then i realized uh all all
4: that probably goes along with that but uh right
1: yeah, it has uh it's not been especially uh fun to to use for the last Eighteen months
0: or so. What about your position there at 18F? You're the deputy executive, is that right, or direct director? Which one is it?
1: Yeah, technically, my title is uh, deputy executive director.
0: Okay, gotcha. And so it's all three of those, all of them, <laughs> all of them. <laughs> you must do yeah. everything. And do you have? Do they give you a badge. Do you get the the badge with it, or is it? Uh, I'm just my my jokes are bad today.
1: Uh, yeah, I don't have a badge, but I do carry a lot of stickers with me everywhere I go.
0: Nice. Yeah so what what's what is your position what what are some of the things you do
1: um yeah i mean essentially i I helped get at f started um when it was about as i mentioned about ten fellows that sort of rolled over from uh, our roles as innovation fellows and then created this small team uh and there were there were three of us that really kind of became the as a couple of our coworkers called us in the early days sort of the the quote unquote parents of the group um I've just sort of evolved into the the role of uh, not having the burden of, of uh, actually running the show, but, but getting to help run and, and be an a advisor in a lot of things. In the early days, I was really focused on um, building out our design capacity and also our communications capacity. And so... Kind of helped recruit the the first designers to the team, helped build a, a small team, and then find a director for that team, which has grown now into an amazing force of I think almost forty designers, and uh, have grown a, a small communications team um, that is uh, I think about five people now, uh, focused on you know getting the good word of 18F out into a lot of different channels and to our customers.
3: You mentioned stickers, and I just had to recall a moment I had a, a week or so back. I was in Portland, standing outside of, Pine, uh, what's it called? Pine State Biscuits, which is spectacular, by the way, <laughs> with a few friends. And uh, there was a lamppost there that had all of the stickers on it from bands and you know political movements and stuff. And there was an 18 f sticker. It was definitely uh, your guys' right there on the side of that lamppost. And I said, hey, I'm interviewing those people next week
2: h f does not endorse uh, defacing city property, um, <laughs> however. <laughs> but yeah, it is really cool. It is really cool to like, see people around with the stickers. They get to some interesting places. That <laughs> was awesome.
1: We have, uh, we have, I think, five people in the Portland area right now.
4: Okay. That's how I got there, then. Somebody put it there.
3: Yeah. I think probably those people are going to Pine State Biscuits because that place, like I said, is spectacular. If you're in the area, check them out. This is not a paid endorsement.
1: I don't know if if this is something that's interesting to you all or not, but I mean, the fact that we sort of talked about Portland and Aiden is in New York and I'm in the Bay Area and then about 40% of our team is in D.C. I mean, we've we've been able to build this really distributed team and uh, people working from coast to coast using video conferencing and and collaboration tools. Uh, And it's, it's pretty amazing. It's it's the first really remote first team that I've ever worked on. And uh, it's been, it's been a pretty cool experience.
3: That is cool, especially for a government agency to be spread out across uh, like that. I noticed that 18F, for those curious about the name, comes from 18th and F Streets, which are in Washington, D.C. and probably the Crossroads of your uh, main headquarters, but yeah, tell us about working remotely and building a remote team, and maybe even some of the tools that you guys use and that kind of stuff. do you want to talk a little bit.
2: Sure. So yeah, uh, you know, as we mentioned, we have people all over the country, and not just limited and limited to uh, cities either. You know, we have people in Wyoming, we have people in Southern Illinois, we have people, you know, all over the place. So yeah, I've been working remotely for a few years, uh, including you know before eighteen F and. I yeah I think we you know it takes a lot of like commitment to kind of have a remote first team but actually GSA the agency we work for you know I think HNF does remote really well but really the agency has been doing remote longer than HNF has existed so GSA has like a really you know forward thinking telework policy and things like that and so you know I think uh there is more more distributed work in government than maybe would you know, someone would guess just because of, you know, the sheer size of it and, you know, the fact that it has to cover the entire country. So, you know, within HNF, we are on chat all day. We use we use Slack very, very heavily. I think we have, you know, hundreds of members and, and probably like 700 channels, something like that. Uh, we're in video. We use a lot of video uh, conferencing. So tools like Hangouts and Zoom you know, Google Box and GitHub for, you know, doing collaboration, uh, things like that. Mm.
3: Those sound very, uh, I don't know, what we call them t- typical in terms of, you know, a technology-based company these days. I guess when you think of a government uh, organization, you think of, you know, having to use internal tools or things that are behind the time. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like y'all haven't been, you know, put into that, uh, that circumstance, which is nice.
2: Yeah, I think, um, you know, kind of, credit to hillary and others that you know have been around uh since the beginning you know when i came in you sort of wouldn't notice that uh 18f weren't an actual startup you know out just in the private sector and you know where you really start to feel it is where in the projects and in the you know kind of bureaucracy that you have to go through for hr or other you know other you know sort of limitations and like what you can or can't talk about those kinds of things but yeah, I mean, 18F, you know, I think we strive to yeah, make it feel like a startup where you wouldn't even notice that it's different in terms of tooling, culture, that kind of thing.
0: So Hilary, in, uh, in one of your emails back to us, you mentioned some details around why you're an open source team and maybe even why open source is such a big deal to the government and maybe even 18F directly. And then all of those that hire you internally in the government to, to do some cool stuff. In your own words, what are some of the reasons why it's important to you? What is what is open source towards
4: the government? What influence does it have for the government?
1: Well, really, at the end of the day, everything that public servants build, everything that we create, is actually open source, whether we call it that or not. It, it belongs to the people. So any work product that we create is the people's. It you know, belongs to our country. Public domain. Yeah, it's public domain. I mean, so fundamentally, it's just the right thing to do.
0: <laughs> so was, was GitHub a, a beacon of light, so to speak, for your you know your efforts in government? I know that in 2013, you mentioned a failed site that we won't name that was sort of the impetus and reason for... Well no, she named it. She named it. Oh, it's she not, didn't. Okay. Good. I didn't want to throw any shade, you know, that's all. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I guess was GitHub, uh, you know, a beacon of light to be able to have a more de facto place to share this stuff and you know, invite the the community, the the general public to peek into or peek behind the veil of what is, like you said, it's open source. But to me, I think, OK, it's open source, but how accessible is it?
1: Right. Yeah. And, and, and that's a really fair question and something that uh, I think we're getting better at, thanks to a lot of effort by Aiden and others on our team. I mean, if you look at GitHub, actually, uh, there have been government teams using it for a number of years now. Code.gov just launched and is pulling in repositories, and it's going to be the official place to, to go find government code. But uh, actually, if you go look at uh, govcode.org, uh, that's it's actually one of our colleagues that pulled that together before he even worked um, for 18S. And, um, you know, y- you can see that there are a lot of different teams and a lot of different uh, groups and a lot of different agencies using GitHub. and so. Um, it's definitely been a um, a tool that has acted a little bit as a forcing function for us and for others because it is uh, it is so easy to use um, to a certain extent. Uh, you know, I I sort of said that at the end of the day, like it's it's the right thing to do, but it's also um, the amount. Hopefully, the amount of reuse and the amount of savings um, that we will see across the government and not just at the federal level, but also at the state and county and territory level well into the future hopefully uh, we see a lot of cost savings that come from people being able to uh, easily find and adapt tools and, and things that ATF and f other teams have built. I also feel like
0: security is an impact there because with so many people having the ability to look into whatever you know if it's a new feature that's being developed or you know an API or something like that like that having people be able to see into that and actually peek into it and Everyone wants this country to be a good country, you know, obviously. And then also because it's open source, other countries buy the nature of open source that other countries are to adopt things we're doing. I'm, we've had Code for America on here. We've had fellows on here before. So we've talked about Gov 2.0. We've talked about open data. We've talked about those things. So it's, it's important to have visibility into those things. And to me, it seems like it might impact security too.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, we believe really strongly in open source and we are open source by default. The, you know, security angle, you know, again, we are not the first people in government to be doing a lot of this. Uh, the Department of Defense of all places actually put out a memo in 2009, I want to say, saying that, uh, you know, security by obscurity. In other words, you mm-hmm. know, hiding the source code is not a legitimately like security protection. Um, And in fact, yeah, like you mentioned, you know, having having the ability for other people to audit that code and, you know, this goes alongside with us using, you know, open source frameworks that are already getting a lot of security, you know, eyes on them. Yeah, it's a huge benefit for us security wise and and otherwise.
0: I think coming back to GitHub, too, with uh, I'm not sure if I got a direct answer that was a beacon of light or not, but it seemed like it might have been because it seemed like maybe the creation of of 18F may have been an easier sell so to speak because if the general public as you mentioned earlier Aiden like that this is the general public's public domain code you know being able to actually put that into a community where it is normal to share normal to collaborate normal to fork normal to send a pull request mm-hmm. and be in the same mix it seems like it made the the process of doing what you're doing around 18f so much easier
2: yeah so i mean we are certainly very very heavy users of github and you know, are sending pull requests all day and um, certainly receive a lot of contributions from outside. You know, I see GitHub as a tool. I think it is, you know, there's a strong community. There's a lot of people that know how to use it and therefore it makes it easier, you know, an easier path to contribute. Um, But really, you know, the more, the sort of long game for me is, Mm -hmm. you know, how do you encourage those contributions? How do you encourage that reuse? If GitHub is the right tool, which I, I think it is right now, that's what we'll use, but it is really the, we're not using GitHub because it's GitHub, we're using GitHub because it helps us, right. you know, succeed in our mission.
3: Of course. Let's talk about some of your guys' code on, on GitHub. You have over 620 repositories that you're the source of, probably plenty more with forks. Uh, one, one thing Adam asked earlier was about the accessibility, and, and some of that, to me, it leads to the idea of around the community and what kind of open source projects uh, they are, Aiden, I think you mentioned Uh, It's all public domain so I assume that they're all licensed like in the public domain you can uh, Correct that if it's wrong, but in terms of like What kind of projects these are? With regard to community are these like it's open source so you can look at what we're doing or is it open source? Because it's a call to action that we want everybody to work on this. What kind of open source is it?
2: Yeah, so there's a lot in that question Um, you know the first part around licensing I learned something interesting recently that um, the, I believe the US government is the only entity essentially in the United States that can waive copyright or that does not have copyright sort of automatically assigned. So we, you know, before my time, uh, it was sort of chosen that we'd use, we 18F would use uh, the Creative Commons public domain license, Creative Commons Zero. Mm-hmm. And that is, you know, has special provisions to, you know, kind of waive copyright in other countries where possible, but individuals can't actually waive copyright. It's not actually a thing that you can do. So mm. uh Creative Commons essentially says, I am trying to waive all copyrights that I can. But the US government is actually uniquely positioned to say, yep, yeah, we don't have copyright. It is public domain. Huh. So yeah, so that's one thing. Um, in terms of contributions, you know, I think, yeah, there are lots of different, you know, ways to do open source, you know, there's this sort of throw it over the wall in, in the sense of, you know, our code is available here and you can look at it and you can download it. But, you know, we really strive for, you know, the far end of doing all of our work in the open, you know, at least in terms of like co- code changes. And, and those sorts of things. So, you know, you, you'll see all of our repositories have pull requests and comments and feedback and and things like that from people in the team. And you know, there's some cool benefits of you know, if there's a question that I and the other people in my team don't know the answer to, I can phone a friend and you know, send them a link to a pull request, and they can actually comment, you know, in the same workflow that we use.
4: Mm.
2: So, you know, there's some really really nice benefits there in terms of getting input on government projects, as well as, you know, anyone being able to open an issue or, or create a pull request, that kind of thing. Um, You know, given that we do have so many public repositories, I think it's kind of overwhelming for people. So I think, you know, one thing we don't necessarily do a great job of is helping people understand, okay, I'm interested in contributing. Where do I start?
0: Right. Which is a good question. We'll definitely ask you towards the end of the show because we like to give people that listen to the show uh, waypoints so to speak you know wh- where can people step in to help with 18 initiatives whether it's in repositories whether it's in absolutely bidding on uh, a feature if they're able to or whatever so
3: yeah yeah i want to speak to one point you made there which i've just recently really enjoyed as well when you mentioned that you can you know link people directly into things and you can have them their comments in line and we recently open sourced the code behind changelog.com and I have lots of like personal projects, open source and other things, but never like a a project that I'm continually been working on and like have issues and, you know, perhaps trying to explain things to people. And one thing that's really cool about having an open source now is, especially when I'm looking for help on a certain thing or I have a question about some code, instead of having to, you know, grab that code and throw it in a gist or, you know, a paste bin or whatever, I can actually just like deep link directly into the areas of the code to show people what I'm talking about. Yeah. And that's really, it's really nice. It's almost like having a common API or a common language to, to, to speak around, basically. Absolutely. And just show, yeah. instead of having to tell people, you just show them. It's like, oh, it's right there. Have a look, you know, really cool.
4: Yeah, absolutely.
3: Cool. Well, I think we're hitting up against our first break. You guys have a lot of projects. We want to highlight some of your major ones and most successful ones. So on the other side of this break, we will talk about success stories and we will dig into some of the details around the technologies and the ideas behind some of 18F's most popular open source projects. We will be right back.
0: Hey everyone, Adam Stachowiak here, Editor-in-Chief of ChangeLog and I'm talking to a Rollbar customer. Rollbar puts errors in their place. Rollbar.com slash ChangeLog. Check them out, get 90 days of the bootstrap plan totally for free. I had a conversation with Paul Bigger, the founder of CircleCI, and he talked deeply about how they use Rollbar and how important that tool is to their developers. Take a listen.
3: CircleCI is a continuous integration and continuous delivery platform. Our customers are the developers in an organization. Developers rely on us heavily as part of their deployment workflow.
0: So let's assume anyone listened to this is someone who needs to use Rollbar. Someone needs to know about this tool, needs to know about this product, needs to know how it's changed, how you do business because of it. I'd like them to know how important this tool is to you. And a better question might even be, could you have done what you're doing with CircleCI without bar's help? We operate at
2: serious scale and Literally, the first thing we do when we create a new service
0: is, is we install Rollbar in it. Like we we need to have that visibility,
3: uh, and without that visibility, it would be impossible to run at the scale we do, and certainly with the number of people that we have. Like we're a relatively small team operating a major service, and without the visibility that Rollbar gives us into our exceptions, it just it just
0: wouldn't be possible. If there's people out there who ship code without
2: Rollbar, I I can only imagine the pain that they're
0: going through. Oh, that's awesome. Thanks, Paul. I appreciate your time. So listeners, we have a special offer for you. Go to rollbar.com slash changelog, sign up, get the bootstrap plan for free for 90 days. That's 300,000 errors tracked totally for free. Get Rollbar trying today. Head over to rollbar.com slash changelog.
3: All right, we are back
4: with Hillary Hartley
3: and Aiden Feldman talking about all things 18F and open source code with the U.S. government. So we teed up before the break talking about some of your success stories, some of the projects that are on GitHub and out there to be seen and to be interacted with. Let's just talk about a few of them, um, starting with micro-purchase. Who wants to give us the rundown on that project?
1: Uh, I can give you uh, two cents on it, which is that um, we've part of uh, how we... Have expanded our work over the last couple of years was by realizing that we're only a, a finite number of people inside a, a pretty big bureaucracy. And there are a lot of people out there that can work like we do and can do amazing work. And so we've done a number of experiments kind of in the acquisition and procurement space um, around, you know, helping government be a better and savvier buyer of technology. And MicroPurchase is a pretty cool example of that, where essentially what we're doing is we uh, you know, we had the hypothesis that we could buy small chunks of code with our government credit cards that have a limit of $3,500. So the question was, did we buy code on a credit card <laughs> for $3,500 or less? Um, what that means is we have to scope tasks uh, really well. We have to get our both our people and uh, the the partner that we're actually writing the task for to kind of think concretely and discreetly about these things, which is which is great for us. Um, And then it means we we put this task out there in this marketplace and people reverse bid on that task. So it starts at thirty five hundred dollars and works its way down. The very first task order that we put out, actually, uh, the winning bid was a dollar. We did not expect it. But it was a, sort of a great monkey wrench in, in the early hypothesis. Uh it made us kind of think about the approach. And, and uh, it also made us realize that a lot of people are hungry for opportunities to do open source work for the government. I mean, the, the, the guy who won uh, actually made a point to say, you know, I would have done this for free, but I had to bid a dollar. <laughs> I, I want to help. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've had a couple of $1 bids uh, since then, but mostly... Uh, I think the average bid um, can actually go to the website and tell you, but I think the average bid is just under a thousand dollars,
3: nine hundred
0: and thirty dollars. I was going to say that, Jared. Sorry, you beat me. There (laughs) you go. You're looking at the insights. Yeah.
1: The
4: insights (laughs) tab is really awesome. I love that.
1: Uh, My favorite stat on there is actually the the number of, um, the number of vendors that we've added to this ecosystem. So, you know, there, there are a lot of people that, that do work for the government. Um, when you want to do work for the government, you actually you have to get uh, qualified via this website called SAM.gov. The I think it's uh, it's an acronym that stands for I think it's a system of acquisition management. System for award management. Award management, yes. It's essentially where you go to to get listed and verify that you're a business and and, uh, and that you're able to to do work for the government. So we've uh, we've registered ninety two new small businesses. Uh, which is awesome, you know these are these are businesses that that now might do other work for the government, but uh, hadn't before, so we're really kind of widening the aperture of you know people and vendors and businesses uh, that want to and can work for the government, and that's really exciting.
3: This is so cool.
2: I should also add that uh the one dollar bid was maybe the first time in history that uh the government has been criticized for not paying enough for software. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's I don't know, I really like this project as an example of, you know, taking this kind of unique government constraint of, you know, this magic number of $3,500 where, yeah, things get a lot more complicated over that number. And, okay, how do we make that work for, you know, the sort of quick iterations and working in open source uh, that we want to.
3: Yeah, I could see this working quite well inside of the enterprise as well, as they often have similar constraints around what you can purchase without... A PO, or without you know, going up up a level to a manager. Mm -hmm. And I love that this started with you know, we have thirty five hundred dollars that we can put on a credit card, and so let's break up these projects so small that we can just do that you know, however many times necessary to get it done. That's a great hack.
1: It's also been forked by the government of Singapore. They actually took our code and they're running it, um, and they're they're running their own micro purchase platform now.
0: New
2: York City is trying as well.
0: There's also an API extended off this to the. It's current version is 0.0.1. So it's certainly early in its its infancy in terms of an API, but how does the API play into micro-purchase? What can people do with it?
2: Yeah, so we use um, a different system internally to do sort of like purchase tracking. And so I think a lot of the API uh, usage is, you know, internal where we actually needed to integrate with our other systems. But, you know, a lot of our projects, and I think we'll talk about this uh, with the other ones that come up too, you know, I think we do have a very strong commitment of opening up the data and the best way to do that, especially where the data changes is by having an API. So yeah, you know, it's, it's important that people can be able to audit us, you know, whether they're actual auditors or, you know, journalists or, or people like that. And uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of, you know, people in the civic uh, tech community who, are interested in different kinds of government data. So yeah, having an API is kind of an enabler for them on top of you know just the use that it has for us internally.
3: Just to flaunt a little bit of your technical abilities, Purchase is a Rails app and it, it proudly has a couple of badges, Code Climate 4.0 rating and 96% test coverage. So it sounds like uh, you know being public has definitely made the team write good code. Yeah, and we try to use a lot of
2: industry standard kinds of tools like Travis CI and Code Climate and things like that to be able to see your tests run when you when either we or an outside contributor, you know, contributes code and it works the same for everyone. We don't need government specific tools for most of these things. It's just it's just code. So we should be able to use what everyone else does.
3: That's awesome. Yeah. So MicroPurchase, we'll link that one up in the show notes for those interested. Definitely the kind of project that you could fork and set up for your company or uh, for other uses. That's very cool that Singapore has hopped on board and uh, New York as well. So uh, anything else on micro-purchase besides, uh, it seems like a good idea, well-executed. Anything else to say on that before we move on? I'd
2: say just that it's you know part of our additional effort that isn't just around building software of you know, actually making... Uh, the kind of the kind of uh internal slogan is uh making procurements joyful, so trying to you know make it so that working with high quality outside vendors you know we don't want to be the one dev shop that does work for government
4: mm-hmm.
2: you know I, I think if H&F succeeds eighteen f won't be necessary uh in the future, and so you know if we can if we can enable good vendors to get work in the government and for you know the government to be able to vet that work well and Scope that work well, then we'll have one.
0: Amen.
3: Yeah, leads us a little bit in the cloud.gov. What do you think, Adam?
0: Well, cloud.gov is the platform as a service for the government. That's pretty cool. Yeah.
3: Yeah, tell us about that.
1: Yeah. Um, cloud.gov, as you said, is essentially a platform as a service for government. And the reason that the for government part is important is that, you know, as a developer on a team inside the federal government, Um, you uh, are actually supposed to be familiar with a number of regulations and memoranda and all kinds of things that uh, tell you how to be in compliance um, with your code. And we added it up, and I think it's uh, currently about 4,400 pages of uh, compliance code, essentially, that people need to, to be aware of uh just to just to ship code just to you know go from a o dot one to an o dot two um and so what we really are trying to do with cloud dot gov is scratch our own itch, but uh in so doing we are essentially enabling any government team uh, to be able to more easily deploy uh their code and their services Aiden, you want to say a little bit more
2: so yeah, we you know started off um with 18f you know doing a lot of our deployments on amazon web services again you know something's very common for people to use um but found that you know because we have this sort of consulting setup where we're working on a lot of different projects and deploying new things all the time we didn't have enough kind of infrastructure experience to be able to you know manage servers for every single one of these you know dozens of projects and spinning up new environments all the time and that kind of thing so you know cloud.gov came out of us sort of looking at the landscape and saying you know okay how can we centralize this experience a bit and not have to have a huge amount of overhead in setting up servers and renewing certificates in you know installing security patches those kinds of things how can we centralize that so that teams can just focus on you know their actual task at hand and uh so yeah it started off as you know a project that we were using internally and you know became clear very quickly that hey there's no reason this wouldn't be useful to other government agencies who have this compliance burden and so not not only can we centralize a lot of the technology things that are needed things like access control things like um, the security updates etc you know by cloud.gov taking on those kind of burdens you can kind of solve for at once, both from a technical and like compliance perspective. And then, you know, teams to get through that compliance kind of hoop, uh, it's much, much simpler because they're just focusing on the things that are specific to them.
3: Is this like a sustainability play? Like in terms of like, are you, is this platform going to be something that will can sustain 18F moving forward in terms of income from other agencies?
2: Yeah. So we have uh, a couple sort of like different
3: business units, we call it. So you know we'll do projects
2: that are specific to agencies that we you know intend to hand off to them or a vendor to maintain on their behalf and the bulk of the projects and we also have these sort of products and platforms so cloud.gov is yeah something that we plan to run indefinitely mm-hmm. and that enables our other projects, but is also yeah it's a you know it's its own business line really it has customers and it has uh teams that are working on projects that HNF wasn't involved with, but they just needed somewhere to deploy that was going to be technically and compliance-wise you know, wise, uh, easy, to, easy to use and make their lives easier. So mm-hmm. CloudDeca has been a big boon for that.
3: And it makes total sense from from your team who's solving your own problem and then turning that over. Are there any alternatives aside from like an AWS? Are there any competitors in this space trying to provide platforms for specific you know, government needs in terms of security and the regulations? um, Or is this basically Greenfield? There's nobody else doing it. Well, so, you know, there's certainly other
2: platforms as a service in the world. You know, I think Cloud Foundry, which is the tool that we're using under the hood in cloud.gov, that is being, it was developed originally by Pivotal and is also being used by HP and uh, Chase and a a lot of other big companies, Mm -hmm. both, you know. As a commercial offering and and not some infrastructure as a service offerings things like aws and azure you know exist and those are you know certainly hev- heavily used in government you know at the at the time and i believe still to this day there is no kind of platform as a service that is uh, what's gone through fedramp what's called fedramp certification so yeah there is no platform as a service that is commercially available or or i should say available to government, you know, from the commercial world, mm. um, I hope that I hope that changes actually because one of the benefits of using this open source platform is that there is um, a lot of platform independence. You know, if your app works on Cloud.gov, it'll work on Pivotal Web Services or or you know, yeah, or these other companies that are offering Cloud Foundry. So if there's other offerings, you know, and that can save the government money, like that would be great.
0: Yeah. So what is FedRAMP? Is it uh, essentially a certification to is it around technology services for the government that like, it's a stamp saying this is okay to use or what is this?
2: Yeah, essentially um, there's a lot of nuance, but yeah, it is essentially a a stamp saying, you know, this cloud provider, uh, you know, whether it's infrastructure or things like Salesforce, you know, things like that hmm. um, have gone through all these compliance checks, you know, which involves a lot of security and that kind of thing. So, you know, other agencies can, Kind of say, okay, we trust FedRAMP, and therefore we are able to leverage this with much lower, you know, barrier to entry than if we were doing whole evaluation ourselves. Right, right. Because government is very, the U.S. government is very decentralized, and so you know each agency is kind of doing this on their own. But FedRAMP is meant to be a sort of centralized, okay, trust us, and and then you can you know do whatever additional checks that you need to, but the barrier is much lower.
0: Is the long-term play to have the government at large use cloud.gov to host things. Is that the long-term plan for this, or is it simply because it seems like it was born out of your own interest to do what you needed to do to get your mission done? But it has a larger ability to help the government long-term. Mm-hmm.
2: Yes, yeah, so, I mean we already have you know sort of external customers, you know like the Environmental Protection Agency uh, launching something that their
0: teams are building. Um, All this is under 18F. Then this is built by 18F
2: mm-hmm but yeah we don't it's it's never it's not meant to be like the exclusive offering you know we don't we're, we're never gonna be in a position where we mandate that people use
0: cloud.gov right but if you have a barrier to get certified though or to get FedRAMP as you mentioned mm-hmm if that's a thing I don't know if FedRAMP is a thing but yeah you know if, if you have to have that stamp then that that pool of availability is limited then you might be the easiest choice and so by definition federated or mandated
2: yeah, I mean, we, you know, actually, I am also working on making the FedRAMP barrier lower. So, you know, like the acquisitions, you know, we don't want to be the only game in town. Right. We are doing a lot of this work because uh it's actually, you know, a lot of ways easier to do it from within government than outside. But yeah, we don't want to exclude vendors. We, you know, I think we believe competition is good. And so mm. if we can... Offer this, but also you know simultaneously try and lower those barriers. That's a
3: win for everyone. It seems like your actions have definitely backed up that sentiment in terms of micro purchase and in terms of this idea behind making procurement a joy. Uh, one way to do that is to have more competition you know amongst those that you can procure from. And so that doesn't I just wanted to say that that seems like more than just lip service to me. It sounds like Aiden, you're actually speaking out of you know the, the organization's desire for real.
4: Absolutely.
1: Someone kind of alluded to it a minute ago, but uh, there's a there's a good saying that, you know, we definitely were not the first to, to use, but that applies here and, and applies to a lot of our project which which is uh essentially to make the right thing the easiest thing. Um a cloud.gov definitely falls into that category. So while we will never mandate its use, you know, we do believe that uh it's making it easy to be in compliant will encourage use. And I mean, that goes for like the, the web standards project that, that we've worked on the standards.usa.gov, you know, encouraging folks to think about a kind of common look and feel uh, across the government is not that that conversation doesn't always go the way that you want to. But if you can make the right thing to do the easiest thing to do,
4: yeah.
1: um, then you see adoption go up. So I think that uh, cloud.gov is a great example of that.
3: Yeah, especially with regards to your open source code, if you have other agencies that can be reusing some things that you've built, now you've already built it the way that you believe is the right way of doing it, and it's so easy for them to do it the right way because they don't actually have to re-implement that. Uh, You have a win in terms of uh, labor, uh, reduced labor, and you also have a win in terms of germinating the right way of doing things into these other agencies. Absolutely. And yeah, I mean, that can go for you know, using all of
2: Cloud.gov, and there's even you know pieces of Cloud.gov. You know, as we've built things around Cloud Foundry, um, the Australian government is using components of Cloud.gov uh, and setting up their own hmm. you know sort of in- instance of of Cloud Foundry. So you know, it, it yeah, it goes even deeper. Of you know, even if it's not the same actual system that they're running, that's you know, the more modular you make things, the better you document, the better you think about making sort of Provider agnostic, that kind of thing. The more, mm-hmm. the more potential for reuse.
3: Hillary, right now you're very much preaching to the choir. Like we totally understand these things. We are with you 100% of the way. All the fans of 18F in the software community and in open source. Like we already understand all the the virtues of open source, and we we share. We have a kind of a common ground in terms of value, and the arguments for. I imagine throughout 18F's history, there's been uh, pushback there's been naysayers there's been fights that you guys have had to fight. can you give us some insight into how well these ideas and the, the this user centric digital services, which is something that you believe in um, and open source has been to establish as a thing the government
4: should do
1: you know it's interesting. Um, there have probably been um, some conversations and some pushback, but for the most part we've been really lucky for two reasons one is we have great support from our agency so uh you know inside gsa they believe in what we're doing and they uh want to give us the the air cover and the room to uh to experiment and to uh try to figure out what the right things to do are second thing is that um we grew very uh, sort of slowly uh, in the beginning, and we're lucky to ex- find early customers, early partners, both inside our agency and and in other agencies, like the CIO of um, the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Service, Mark Schwartz. Uh, we were able to find great early partners like him who already had Agile teams. They were already, you know, uh, drinking the Kool-Aid about open source and user centered design. And so it enabled us to really uh kind of build up um, some wins and build up some talking points and 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 create some stories early on uh that we could then take out to folks who uh who were new to some of this. So those two things really kind of set us on a on a path where uh you know we say all the time uh inside our team, you know, show don't tell you know, uh, show the thing. And, um, and that's what I think enables us to kind of bring folks along who it really may be new to, or, uh, kind of unknown territory. Um, but we also, we, we insulate ourselves from it a little bit as well, because, you know, we, we write the way that we work and the sort of how of 18F, we write a lot of that into our, uh, contracts, if you will. So we don't exactly do contracts, so to speak, but they're called interagency agreements. And we write a lot of of that stuff into our interagency agreements so that when people do sign on the bottom line uh, to work with us, they know that uh, we're an open source team, uh, which means uh, we're going to default to being being open source unless there's a very, very compelling uh, security, privacy, et cetera, reason not to. Um, but it also means that they, they know that, that we're an agile team, that, uh, we're going to, we're going to talk about it vociferously you know, we're going to blog, we're going to tweet, we're going to, we're going to en- engage them and, uh, in talking about this. So, uh, I think that was another key thing that, um, we decided to do early on, uh, really just to en- enable buy-in.
2: I'd add, uh, doing a lot of user research too.
1: Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. I think the biggest pushback comes from, uh, and, and rightly so, comes from industry. Um, you know, wanting to work with us, but having a COTS product that's not going to be open source. It is their bread and butter. That's how they make money. Um, but they still want to be able to partner with us. They want to be able to compete. They want to be able to to do the work. And so, I think um, kind of the next frontier for us is to, at least in our consulting work, is to is to start doing some work around uh, what can our team do. To help shape uh, again if we're trying to essentially make our customers better savvier buyers of technology um sometimes that that does mean you know kind of understanding the landscape of of what's out there you know we don't want to build everything from scratch uh and so i think uh you know we will start to get involved with kind of understanding uh market research and, and maybe creating rubrics around um how we do approach uh, some things that that are not open source but um but it's always gonna, I think, you know, it'll always be in our DNA, and it's not always what we're gonna default to because uh, we do fundamentally believe that even just on the kind of cost and and reuse side of things, it's it's what we want to model for the rest of the government.
0: That process there, to, You call them interagency contracts. Is that what is that the right word to term for it? It was called?
1: It's an IAA, an interagency agreement. Interagency
0: agreement. So when you do that, and you have to do. User research and things like that. And you mentioned before you charge a rate. Is that research part of it to even get the contract? Is that written into it? How do you account for, I guess, making sure that you remain financially stable?
1: Yeah, it's a delicate balance. Um, we, we do a little bit of upfront work to um, basically decide if we can take on a project. Um, so there'll be a little bit of research, there'll be a little bit of discovery uh you know, just so that we can decide, right. okay, do we have the right people with the right skills um to approach this but generally for um for any kind of heavy type of uh, uh any heavy user research or heavy discovery period, um we engage the agency um for uh, short periods of time to do that you know two to four to six weeks uh essentially to say, you know come on board, we'll put together a team. To help crack this nut and help figure out this this problem and, and sort of chart the path forward. And so we do charge for, for those engagements.
0: I imagine just like any other agency, you have the same problems, just different areas. It's, it's about perspective, really. We're getting close to our next break. I want to tee up what we're going to talk about on the other side, though. It's the 18F guide, which I think is super awesome. It's the repository for best practices. You mentioned Agile earlier and how... Uh, those that work with you realize you're an agile team. I and mean, A lot of what you do as a f as an agency is outlined in these guides, it may not be exactly customer facing, but it's at least transparency. So I think this is pretty interesting. You got APIs and then you've got your testing cookbook in there. You've got your agile practices in there. And it may not be, uh, you know, super deep for each subject, but there, are, this is a lot of information for everybody to, I think it's really interesting just to have the transparency level of that. Each of them tied back to a repository. So it's open, people can see it, people can contribute even if it's uh, simply just a typo so it's not just code that 18f is producing so team that up real quick before the break we'll dive deeper on the other side we're right back our friends at thoughtworks have an awesome open source project to share with you GoCD is an on-premise open source continuous delivery server that lets you automate and streamline your build test release cycle for reliable continuous delivery With GoCD's comprehensive pipeline modeling, you can model complex workflows for your team with ease, and the value stream map lets you track a change from commit to deploy at a glance. The real power is in the visibility it provides over your end-to-end workflow, so you can get complete control of and visibility into your deployments across multiple teams. To learn more about GoCD, visit go.cd slash changelog for a free download. It is open source. Commercial support is also available, and enterprise add-ons as well, including disaster recovery. Once again, go.cd slash changelog, and now back to the show. Now we're back from the break, and I mentioned the 18F guides beforehand, the repository for best practices across the teams. I think this is super awesome to, to have this. I think more jared and i have this sort of in behind the scenes to some degree we have this thing called one voice it's not exactly our playbook but to some degree it's it it sets the foundation for some things we do although Jared's speaking out loud i think we probably could do better and should do better around (laughs) following uh the 18f's ways of doing this i think these guys are really awesome so what uh we mentioned uh cloud.gov we've mentioned micro purchase and now 18f guides these are all Unique ways that the government is doing some cool stuff around open source, and this isn't code. This is this is essentially
1: prose. Yeah, the ATF guides uh, are essentially kind of our bre- documentation of our best practices. Um, you know, being a remote first team, being a distributed team, being an open source team uh, meant that we had to take documentation seriously, and we also had to really think about um, you know uh kind of codifying some of the some of the ways that we work so that um uh, the other factor that actually plays in here is that we are all on uh, kind of term appointments so none of us are career civil servants that are going to you know be around for decades but we're we're all here for 2 to 4 years and so there will always be a little bit of churn in our workforce and it's, So it's super important to document how we work and how we've done things in the past, so that people don't have to reinvent the wheel over and over and over again every time you know someone new joins or someone leaves, and you know their their knowledge is not lost. Um, so the guides were uh, sort of similar to the you know to the origin of gov. I mean, the guides are, are selfish in in one way. Um, in that, you know, uh, our accessibility guide, our analytics guide, our agile guide, our content guide, those are things for us. They're, they're for our team. This is how we think about these topics. Um, but then at the end of the day, we want them to be open. We want them to be a resource that our, um, that our peers and our partners can also use and learn from. Uh, so this is really our way of kind of documenting the heck out of everything that we do and turning it outward for the benefit of the rest of the government and for anyone else who, who wants to learn a little bit about hmm.
0: it. Th- I think that uh, the first time I saw someone do some guides really well was, was Thoughtbot, Jared. I don't know if you hmm. had seen their playbook yeah. they had it open source and I was always, I love Pytel and the team he's built at Thoughtbot, I think they've always been inspiration in both as a agency as well as a you know a product team as well as open source. They've definitely led the way in, for listeners who care, there's an episode of Founders Talk with that where I talked to Chad Paito about a couple of years ago. It Was actually just when they were expanding their offices to different countries, and it was pretty interesting. So, but uh, their playbook was an inspiration to me. So to see you all as a government organization take the same approach to have transparency, and as you mentioned, to codify, you know, your term, what you learn that way. So, Aid, maybe in a couple of years, you won't be in the position you're in anymore with ATF, and but yet you're your knowledge base that you've kind of collected will live on.
2: Yeah. And I think for a lot of our guides, you know, things like the agile guide, for example, you know, a lot of that content is going to be very general purpose and, you know, it describes our best practices, but I think that would work in, you know, any organization that's trying to adopt those kinds of things. We also have, you know, a lot of things that are very government specific. They're very extensive and, uh, you know strange and non-intuitive you know regulations and compliance things we have to deal with where you know co- codifying what we've learned and how we've learned how we've sort of figured out how to do certain processes for example you know how we manage our github team how we you know what uh, ci systems we can use based on what permissions they ask for in github you know, things like how we do slack admin, slack integrations and, and consider them. All these kinds of things are very specific to government and not something that you probably have to think about outside, but us having codified that for you know our internal admins and things to use, you know, someone else from another agency can see that and say, oh, well they've already like figured out how to do this in a safe and you know legal way. So or you know regulation uh friendly way. And so we can just reuse that and not have to reinvent the
0: wheel. How does that make onboarding easier? I'm imagining that adding to or taking away from the team has got to be strenuous whenever um, you know, there's just so much to learn about. This is a new frontier. This isn't like you've been a 20 or 30 or 40 year old agency inside the government. You're fairly new. So a lot of the things you're doing are sort of new frontier. I got to imagine doing this makes that process easier to add to and take away from the team.
2: Sure. Yeah. I mean our documentation is available. People before they join can learn about what the onboarding process is like. They can read the guides and read, you know, what's gonna be expected of them, that kind of thing. Uh we even have a tool that we built called uh Dolores Landingham, which is a nod to the West Wing character.
0: Nice, okay.
2: That uh, you know, helps with onboarding by essentially doing like a drip campaign over Slack. So, you know, on the first day, like, hey, have you remembered to sign up for your healthcare or whatever on the second day like hey if you have you gone and read this guide you know so that's uh so that's another thing where you know yeah onboarding government is not uh a small feat and so we can sort of have guide guides and tooling all of which are open source and reusable you know that can sort of allow that
3: that's a very cool idea an internal drip campaign via slack to onboard people yeah i like that yeah
2: yeah That's been reused by other organizations too. So
3: grab the code. I'm over here perusing your blogging section. You have a section called writing a great post and I'm just taking down notes on how I can be a better blogger. So uh, (laughs) when you say general purpose, I mean, this, this, this is very general purpose. Definitely.
0: Is it essentially if you've learned something, do your best to share it here as a guide?
3: No, it's even better than that. Like they have specific tips. No, no, no. I mean like how they add to 18F. Oh,
2: yeah if it's not written down you know it, it sort of lives with that person and that person might leave government and so you know i feel pretty strongly about you know if you're if you're really thinking about getting the best like bang for the buck in terms of you know value to the taxpayers you know for every right. dollar spent essentially like if you don't distill something you've learned into documentation it's you're kind of wasting some value there right
0: so that's what i was meaning jared not so much the blogging side of it was the oh, that's, yeah, how do they How do they uh, share with the team how to give back through guides?
3: Yeah, that makes total sense. I just thought you were talking to me. Yeah. And I don't know how they do that. Well, I'd like to learn.
0: Aiden, why don't you tell us? (laughs) (laughs) Somebody tell us. So,
2: (laughs) So, uh, yeah, I mean, all of our, you know, again, our documentation, just like our code, is uh, in GitHub repositories. Right. And we, you know, welcome contributions there as well. Um, You know, and we try and, you know, specify when things are you know, HNF specific versus or government specific versus something we think is general. Um, yeah. I mean, open issues, like don't be, you know, we, none of our projects are so our, our rails or, you know, something to that sort of scale where we are worried about like noise from issues. So like, just don't hesitate to, you know to open issues ask questions like we're happy to talk and we're always excited uh tweet at us you know whatever whatever method you'll get you'll get in touch with us engage basically yeah and um you know we also have uh some open slack channels so uh chat.18f.gov you can you can join some of our public slack channels and talk to us there so yeah any really any way you can get in touch with us you'll be connected to the right people and you know figure out we'll help you figure out what you want to contribute to that kind of thing
0: very cool we're going to add the chat.18f.gov into the show notes for sure because yeah i love it whenever organizations like yours embrace the general public being able to reach out whether it's a github issue or a slack channel i think this is certainly or even the guides being open source i mean that that's this is something to be celebrated and to be modeled after
4: Yeah, we'd
2: love to love to hear from people
0: so one thing we wanted to talk about before we began to close out was, was something we probably couldn't shy away from if uh, if we did the show. The last thing Jared or I want when someone listens to this to say, hey, this post came out on the Washington Post and you didn't even mention it. And you talked about sustainability, you talked about the stability of 18F, and you didn't mention this, you know, uh, clickbait t- title post. I mean, it's a, probably a great post from Joe Davidson. There's a columnist there, but uh, the title is "Why a Federal High Tech Startup Is a Money Loser," and it's just basically talking about how 18F is essentially destined to lose money and has been losing money, and it kind of outlines some of the things. And there was even uh, in the breaks we mentioned we were going to talk about this, and so Hillary, you mentioned this. Uh, uh, non-endorsed, I guess it's written from a fan of 18F that says. The exact opposite which is 18f is hardly a waste of money, so we have these two angsts here and just generally as an organization who cares about open source and the stability of it, and we certainly have outlined some of the value you've added back in and to add value you always have to invest it's not always about just simply making money or you know financially uh, profiting so to speak, uh, but having good software for our government agencies good practices for our government agencies and certainly a beacon of light for other agencies like Singapore or other countries like Singapore to be able to, uh, you know, pick up some of these things and and do this. But I'm kind of curious what your thoughts are on that post or these posts and and maybe help us understand the backstory here.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, The backstory is that uh, each federal agency has an inspector general and the inspector general um, known as the IG for short, Um, of that agency is essentially generally charged with ferreting out waste, fraud, and abuse. And, um, you know, we've been saying for two years that uh, our time was coming because every program uh, gets audited at some point or another. And 18F went under audit by our IG starting at the beginning of 2016. And so basically from about January through, you know, July or August, I think, um, uh, we were essentially under review and and mostly they were scrutinizing our finances and uh it, it's probably a little bit more information that we need but um essentially 18F is funded by an internal revolving fund um that is inside the GSA so it's a it's a fund called the acquisition services fund which is managed by, um, one of the top line business units in GSA called the Federal Acquisition Service.
2: It's a seed fund, essentially.
1: Yeah. The Acquisition Services Fund is, um, is essentially a revolving fund that, uh, they use to purchase kind of good for government services and tools, essentially. And so, uh, you know, they, they made an investment in 18F. Uh, we have a three year memorandum of understanding with them. Um, that essentially says, you know, we're, we're going to be your startup fund. Um, mm. and when we use the ASF, as we call it, um, programs are required to have a plan to get back to cost neutral. Uh, so it's, we've got to be cost recoverable. We've got to eventually get to the place where, um, we are putting our investment, uh, you know, putting the investment back into the fund. Um, and so, uh, I think to date, uh, over the last three years, we have lost um about ten million a year but again that's uh we grew from you know ten to two hundred uh we've made investments i mean it's interesting we've we've focused on projects like cloud.gov, uh like the micro purchase platform um even our guides that as we discussed like we could not we could not operate as a uh, as an efficient team nor could we plan to be a sustainable and efficient team into the future without those guides and without all that documentation, that all takes time. And and it's unbillable time. It's, it's things that we don't uh, build to anyone but ourselves. And that's what we got scrutinized for in this report was really kind of, um, uh, not, not putting enough back into the fund. Um, but we are on track. Uh, we, we have, um, a, a similar, um, investigation was actually done by the I never get the acronym right. The GAO, the General Accountability uh, Office, looked into both um, at and USDS over the summer as well. You know what we've confirmed is that you know, we we do have a plan to get there. We've been saying that uh, we will probably be cost uh, neutral in uh, 2019, and uh, in the meantime, we are growing revenue. I think. Uh, I think the stat that we put in our blog post as a as a response to that uh, i g report was that just from fiscal year two thousand fifteen to two thousand sixteen uh, I think there was a sixty nine percent increase in revenue so we are you know we are growing our pipeline we are growing our business, and we also are now able to spend less time on some of this foundational work you know we've we've invested the time in the agile blanket purchase agreement so that we now have seventeen other vendors that we can go to. Uh, to help us scale our efforts we 've invested the time in the micro purchase platform so now that we've you know we've got ninety two other businesses that are helping us do uh, small tasks we 've invested the time in, in these guides and things like that so um you know it's it's i think it's just really important to kind of uh not miss the the forest or the trees um, absolutely we we haven 't been perfect we 've been in startup mode but uh but we 're on the right path
2: I think it's also worth noting that, you know, if you just frame it in terms of like, uh, expenditures or, you know, r- or revenue, you know, all of government that is not the IRS is a money loser, right? They're not, they're not bringing in money and that's not really the point. They're providing value and that costs money. Um, you know, we are doing a lot of things to try and, you know, operate more leanly and, and, you know, have better um or you know have have smaller overhead, that kind of thing to try and reach uh cost recoverability. But it wasn't a waste in that, you know, that money was just poured down the drain or something like that. That was, you know, like Hillary said, went to, you know, building building projects that went to um you know developing documentation that went to uh you know all the work we've done with our partners, etc. It's just it hasn't it hasn't balanced out to the point that we need it to. And so we're working towards that. But It wasn't just gone
4: Mm.
3: you think because of the model applied of the startup uh, business agency uh, inside the government this this unique thing that you're held to a higher standard to produce revenue because of that well yeah i mean it certainly is unusual right for i mean gsa is the only
2: agency that i really know of that you know is meant to have these kind of revenue neutral programs so it is unusual for government and you know, that means we're operating more like a business than, you know, a normal government agency. Mm. Yeah, so it's it's certainly challenging. And yeah, we're not perfect, but we are constantly improving and, uh,
3: you know, on track to get there. We'll definitely link up both the article in the Washington Post, post by Joe Davidson as well as the Medium post uh, by, I believe, a third-party fan or someone who just is in support of 18F. Uh, so that people can read those for their own. Adam, real quick, you mentioned this. You're sure this is a good article. I just want to say he did use a good pun in his article, The Washington Post. He said he gives the uh, 18F's financial administration an F.
1: Get it?
4: <laughs> mm. Mm. So good.
3: <laughs> That's journalism right there.
1: Just one F, 18F. <laughs> yeah, really.
3: Tom Van Antwerp. Good job. Well, let's end on a on a bit of a happier note uh, in terms of people getting involved. And uh, one thing you already mentioned, Aiden, was the Slack channel. But for those open source hackers out there who like what you guys are up to and your mission and, and the way you're going about building user centric systems and open source things, what are some ways that we, the community of of open source developers, can help 18F and its purpose?
2: Yeah, so there's a blog post from uh, a few months ago called. Uh, something like, you know, a, a bunch of 18F reusable tools or, you know, tools that you can reuse in your organizations or something like that. And for that, we sort of, you know, combed through our vast uh, number of GitHub repositories and looked for projects that, you know, aren't going to be the FEC homepage, the Federal Election Commission homepage or something like that, but are more, you know, reusable tools that we think could be could be applied in different contexts. So that's a good one, especially if you are, interested in finding 18f projects that can be used for your you know for for whatever team you're on uh we do use the help wanted tag on github um on a number of repositories so you can search for that you can tweet at us you know that's honestly you know if you tell us like what your skills are and what you're interested in it might be the easiest way to to be directed to something um or ask in ask in slack etc
3: is your Twitter account, the 18F Twitter account, pretty active in terms of actually reaching, you know, a team member, or is it a more of a announcement style black hole?
1: There are real people behind that account.
2: <laughs> yeah. Cool. Yeah, we definitely respond to any, uh, you know, questions or or things like that that are that are tweeted to us.
0: And it's just at 18F, as you would expect, on Twitter. So it's pretty easy. Yeah. Can't get any easier than that. Besides, at Hillary. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> So we are, uh, we are really close on time. You'd mentioned earlier, though, in the break, and I, I hate to broach another subject, but if, if there's like a quick mention you can mention about new stuff at code.gov. I know you blogged about it recently. There's a lot of interesting things happening there. If you just give us a 30-second version of what's happening there, that'd be awesome.
2: Yeah. So the federal government, uh, the Office of Management and Budget, uh, specifically in the White House, um, just adopted a federal source code policy so this is saying that, you know, basically we, the federal government, want to have our commitment to public domain to actually translate into source code being available. And so, yeah, Code.gov is sort of an accompanying piece to this policy, providing a list of actual you know, code repositories from various agencies and be the sort of collector of those, as well as you know providing guidance to agencies on how to, you know, kind of do open source, like how do you deal with mixed licenses? How do you deal with outside contributors? Do they need to just, you know, sign a contributor license agreement? You know, what sorts of um, protections do you need to have on your uh, on your source code in terms of what gets merged, that kind of thing? So um, yeah, it's a kind of hybrid of you know public facing in the sense that you know here are, here are projects that you might be interested in, uh, or here's what the government has available, as well as you know government focused guidance.
0: Very cool. Yeah, it's code.gov. And uh, I know there's some recent blog posts on the ETF blog about that. So we'll link up a couple of those, some new interesting things happening there. I think that's uh, certainly a good thing. It's the next milestone is the headline for this post on November 7th. The next milestone in federal open source code. So certainly wanted to mention that before we close out the show. But if there's anything else that either of you want to mention before we close out, this is a chance to do it. So. If you have anything you want to close with, if you got the ear of the open source world, something you can sh- share that's, uh, you know, about your journey, uh, advice, inspiration, whatever, to, to kind of close out on.
1: Well, I think um, you know, in case people stumble across this and they work for government, whether it's federal government or state government or local government, um, and maybe they they haven't done too much open source just yet. One thing that we've been doing lately is challenge, folks, to say, you know, take one project, one project that you're working on this year and and try to open source it. And I think that's just really important uh, as we start to see this ethos kind of uh, take over uh, across government and and not just federal government or or state government. Because, again, you know, we're actually starting to see some cities kind of uh, working together. To, to solve problems you know in San Francisco they're really interested in you know getting two or three or four cities together to figure out how to uh, you know, solve something with regard to transit or or, uh, or identity and open source is going to be the path forward on uh, with that so that's that's really exciting
0: that's a great way to close Hillary and you actually uh, have a guide to back it up there's a 18 of open source daga which is essentially a process to name your project making the repo descriptions clear uh read me documentation so if anybody out there is listening as hilly just said uh, we're gonna link up in the show notes this open source style guide to, to kind of help you take that next step which Hillary asked you to do so and if you're in government and you listen to this show reach out to us we want to hear what you have to say about this project and and just in general your questions on open source you can email us at editors at changelog.com or hit us up on GitHub. We have an open inbox there called ping so if you go to github.com slash thechangelog ping Uh, Submit an issue. We'd like to do that in the public because, Jared, how cool is that? I mean, this show started as an open source or an open repo ping, right? And it's our open inbox. It helps us uh, at mention Hillary, at mention aiden and be able to pull them into to the show and and have this conversation.
3: Absolutely, we love it. So uh, definitely go out there if you have show ideas, send them to us. We are we are all ears, all ears. And with
0: that, that is the show. So we'll close out Hillary and Aiden, Thank you so much for your service for our country and the government and as uh, as fellow hackers we appreciate your care and love for the open source uh software out there as well as the community that powers it and uh making it such an important endeavor for our country to support and and uh that's that's just super awesome and listeners thank you so much for tuning in to this show and uh with that let's say goodbye
3: bye thanks oh bye 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 love
2: you
4: <laughs>